Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Yaakov Dolgopolsky Geva. He's an Israeli scholar. I'm not going to spend a long time with introductions here because the guests do their own introductions. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Yaakov Dolgopolsky Geva. Yaakov Dolgopolsky Geva. That is the last time I'm going to say your full name for the duration of the interview. Before we get started with my questions, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself? I'm an Israeli Hebrew Bible scholar. I uh, teach at the Open University of Israel, um, as well as in the Gordon Academic College. And I've I've done my my PhD my PhD research at Hebrew University under the supervision of Professor Nidhi Vazana. Uh, I completed it in uh, 2020, and I believe we're going to talk today about my, my article from JBL about Joshua 10 and 11. These are the most interesting chapters in the Bible, to, in my opinion. Okay, well, that's okay, a strong maybe, start. Maybe I'm... Uh, maybe I no, you planted that. a flag. <laughs> Leave it there. Okay, so where I want to start is actually at the end. So I'm going to read through your summation and then I'll have my question. Okay. But so you say the last two paragraphs of the article, you say summing up the probable settings for the different stages in the textual development of 10, 1 through 39 and 11, 1 through 15 may be reconstructed as follows. The original narrative was a compilation of military accounts composed in the Northern Kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BCE, sometime before the Assyrian conquest of 722 to 720 BCE. Uh, so I'm going to stop there and just say, so I, I forgot to mention the name of the article is where and when did the authors of Joshua 10, one through 39 and 11, one through 15 live. So jumping back to the front, you say this article challenges a common scholarly view regarding Joshua 10, one through 39 and 11, one through 15. So how, how far back does that common scholarly view go? Is that a traditional thing or is that a fairly modern thing? No, it's a, it's a modern thing. It's not a traditional view. It's a, it's a modern scholarly near consensus. Um, I would say that, uh, that these these two chapters, Joshua 10 and uh, 11, um, as in fact the, the preceding chapters, Joshua 6 through 9, uh, that this, uh, this is a Judean composition. This is usually attributed to the late 7th century BCE, around the time of King Josiah and his religious so-called reform. And, uh, and being attributed to, to that period, or by some scholars to even a somewhat later period, Judean, some scholars talk about these chapters, Joshua 6 through 11, if you like, and sometimes, sometimes even more than that, maybe even Joshua 2 through 11, they speak about these chapters as a Deuteronomistic work, um, perhaps from the time of Josiah and perhaps from a somewhat later period, uh, say, the Babylonian exile. Um, this means that uh, when, when you view these chapters as a Deuteronomistic piece of work, it, it means uh, that prior to the time of King Josiah, there never actually existed conquest narrative, such as the one that we read 
in, in the book of Joshua today. There were perhaps just these scattered narrative fragments, and, and these are only the Deuteronomists. This is only, these are only Judeans of the 7th century BCE that invented a conquest narrative, invest, invented the, this story, made it a story. So I, I challenge this. I think this is, I think there are good reasons to suppose differently, at least about Joshua. 10 through 11. And to be honest, if Joshua 10 and 11 are originally in an initial earlier form, these chapters are somewhat earlier than the Deuteronomistic movement. If they are, in fact, from the northern kingdom of Israel before its destruction, that is, before 722 BCE, uh, then it is much more likely that a conquest narrative already existed in that period, and that the Deuteronomistic editors of of former prophets, the Deuteronomistic historiography is a piece of work that extends from Deuteronomy through two kings. This is the common common view. So the Deuteronomistic editors that created this big piece of work uh, already had a conquest narrative at hand, already had a northern early conquest narrative, which they used as a sort of as, a, as an important tile in their uh, mosaic. So was this in either event, either your thesis or the thesis that you're writing against, is this something that it transmitted orally and it's been written down? Or d- does that kind of view lend itself more to the idea that they were fragments that were then collected into a unified narrative? How do you see I'm, that? I'm, I'm not talking about story. oral. I'm not to, uh, obviously the origins of the story have to be uh, some kind of some kind of a bucket of traditions that, that were rolling around. Perhaps some of them were connected initially to the concept of the conquest of of the land of Israel by the Israelites, and potentially some of them were not. Some of the, these traditions were not connected to this concept, but came from from different backgrounds in history but obviously some sort of some sort of an oral stage had to be there but this is not the stage that I'm talking about here here I'm talking about a stage of written narrative text I, I've only just recently learned about how scrolls could be modified so I'm just trying to take it step by step and see in evaluating these kinds of things so you're solely concerned with, the, the text and is that just extant texts or are you also thinking about how could this have been generated in a community maybe in, in text that we don't have in front of us yeah i'm, I'm talking about the text that we don't have in front of us the, the earlier okay, forms good. of the text which i try to reconstruct and many other scholars do as well okay i just i don't want to make the assumption that it's it's one and not the other so i, I was yeah, and sure. I, and, and for the listeners, there is no talk of oral transmission. That's just me trying to be thorough because I don't really know how the process works. Um, uh, so um, no, I'm, I'm talking with, about textual transmission of, of scribal transmission, if you like, yeah, not oral. And so, what we have in front of us it, with you evaluating, and this is really the fascinating part, like going into it, looking at the text, you're evaluating adjacent cultures, how things worked at that time destructions of areas that we know. I am not, 
you wrote the article, so I'm not going to guide you as far as how you want to bring that up. But, but what is the pertinent data here? You organized it, but I'm not going to sit here yeah. and read your article. I'll say this. If we're trying to, I, I think that the most important are two, two contenders this is not my this is not my contribution to the discussion but i think that looking at looking at past discussions about this about this issue we're talking about two main two main historical backgrounds that are the best contenders for the role of being the background for the composition of of this text one is 8th century uh, northern kingdom of israel pre 722 bce because in by 700 22 BC, there was no Northern Kingdom anymore. And the second is the more commonly assumed 7th century BCE Kingdom of Judah. Uh, what I basically did in this article is I, I tried to find in any place that I, in any way, in any detail uh, that I have in within uh, Joshua 10 and 11, uh, any uh, potential, any potential hint to, to one of those of these backgrounds. Um, and I found, I think this is somewhat surprisingly, I found that there are quite a lot of quite a lot of hints towards a pre-722 BCE northern Israelite context. I would maybe I would say the most prominent ones. First of all, the the political reality that is reflected in this narrative. In, in both these chapters, 10 and 11, we have a, a coalition of local kings opposing an external force. The external force, that is the Israelite force, is, is much stronger than these, than these locals. Uh, these locals uh, gather and form a, a coalition that is, you can call it a a coalition of peers or semi-peers. Uh, none of them is another empire. Uh, none of them is not local. These are local Canaanite kings that form a coalition. One is led by by uh, the king of Jerusalem, and one is led by the king of Hatzor. Uh, coalition of the south is led by the king of Jerusalem, and that of the north by the king of Hatzor. Um, and they try to oppose the Israelites, and of course, fail terribly. Many scholars in the past noticed the fact that there is an interesting correlation between this, this pattern of, of military diplomatic action uh, and the way local kingdoms in Syria and northern Israel, northern land of Israel, opposed the Assyrians in the 9th and 8th centuries BCE. It is it is quite it is quite common. We see it in mainly in the Assyrian inscriptions, descriptions of of such coalitions. What I think scholars in the past either failed to notice or did not find important enough to note is that this pattern also disappeared. It did not last eternally, uh, and the last coalition of this type uh, in the ancient Near East took place in 720 BCE, two years after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, in, uh, in later periods, uh, similar coalitions always had to, to depend on an external force, usually Egypt. 
that would uh, that would uh, assist them and these were not really local coalitions these were more like these uh, externally sponsored uh, proxy coalitions that were actually taking care of the Egyptian interest much more than they would take care of their own interest and in fact within the 7th century BCE such coalitions did not exist at all which means that uh, for an author living in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BCE, coalitions of this sort was something he, he saw in the news. For someone who lived in Judah in the time of Josiah, this was a historical memory as remote to him as World War I is remote to us. Uh, this, is, this is quite a difference. So this is, I think, a very strong, very strong argument to, in support of a northern Israelite pre-722 BCE uh, provenance. The surprisingly accurate information about Chatzor that appears in, uh, in Joshua 11, uh, two pieces of information that are historically accurate. One, that Chatzor was, in fact, the head of all those kingdoms. Chatzor, we know this from, from archaeology and from external non-biblical documents from the second millennium BCE. Chatzor was the leading city-state in Canaan, much stronger and much, uh, much bigger and much more influential than any other. And indeed, it totally deserves that title of Chatzor, the head of all those kingdoms. Um, the second interesting piece of information is the fact that it was destroyed by fire. And it indeed was destroyed by a huge fire. Most of the scholarly debates about these uh, accurate pieces of information revolve around, around the fact that uh, most details about Canaan and about Cana Canaanite society within the conquest narrative in Joshua are very non-accurate. Usually the information is completely false. Uh, there were no walls in Jericho, and the uh, eye didn't exist at all, and uh, Lachish was not destroyed in the right date. Everything just does not correspond to the information that uh, that we have outside outside the biblical text. And here, surprisingly, about Chatzor, that is far away from, from the centers of uh, of Israelite culture, from Jerusalem or from Bethel, uh, about Chatzor we have this accurate information. Most of the scholarly debates about this were about the question whether this accurate information about Chatzor reflects historical memory. Then this is some sort of a problem if we look at the other details in the book of Joshua that do not reflect historical memory. Um, or that they reflect some sort of... A, some kind of correct interpretation of visible remains of Canaanite Chatzor. That is, that people in, in the First Temple period could visit Chatzor and see the ruins of the huge Canaanite city that once existed there. The Israelite, Israelite Chatzor is much smaller, uh, and the ruins of the huge Canaanite city are very impressive. Uh, so if any of those were, were still visible Above, above surface in the first temple period, this could explain how people got to the conclusion that Chatzor was the head of all those kingdoms. And perhaps the remains of the fire were still visible. 
So the, the debates about, about these details are usually debates about whether they do or do not reflect historical memory. But I think we're all missing out on something quite incredible here. These are details about Chatzor. Chatzor um, was an Israelite, an Israelite city until 734 BCE, a part of, of a region that was, was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. This means people from other regions of Israel, people from Samaria, from Bethel, or from, could either visit Chatzor or they could meet people from Chatzor and get all the local Chatzor traditions from them and transmit them perhaps into written text. But in 734 BC, Chatzor was destroyed by the Assyrians. The entire region, the entire Galilee region, is one of the regions that were incorporated into the Syrian Empire at that relatively early stage, and Chatzor was never rebuilt. People from Judah in the 7th century BCE could not visit Chatzor personally. Probably they could not. It was outside the border, and there were no people of Chatzor to meet. There was no one to get the traditions from. So the existence of these accurate details about Chatzor, I think, are also a very good, very good sign towards northern Israelite provenance. There is more, but I think this is, these are two good examples of what I see as, as important evidence in this, in this argument, in this debate. So you're saying, and and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pronounce it the same way. <laughs> Hezor, is that okay? To yeah, it's okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. So the the fact that if you want to date as the people that you're you're debating with, if you want to date it to the 600s BCE, what you're running into, yeah, in in Judah or in Judea, what you're running into is there's no reason to think they would know about it. And they wouldn't know anybody who knew anything about it. It would be like someone talking about the Prussian Empire, which wasn't even a thing when my grandfather was born, let alone for me. I'm not telling stories, which actually goes to the idea that no matter what someone believes about it, the text... I would take it even more radically. It's just imagine that, that Berlin would have been des- a deserted heap of stones for some horrible reason, and you couldn't even meet anyone from the capital of the Prussian Empire right. to tell you stories, to tell you any local any local stories about it. So it's almost like the underlying idea there is whoever's telling this story without any information is not telling an honest story that even they think is honest. Whereas the dating that you have, even if there's some remove from that place, they could know these things and this area. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that this is a huge challenge anyway. You look at it to understand how these stories, how these stories ran into the book of Joshua. Um, and this is especially this is an especially tricky question because other details about about Canaan, have completely escaped the knowledge of of these of these authors, so it's, it's almost I think it, it, it's almost demanded to understand that 
something about these details about regarding Hatzor is different from what happens in other parts of, of the book of Joshua. Uh, and I think I find no better explanation than to say someone someone was able to get local traditions from Hatzor local traditions about the history of this city. Just notice these two details, the detail about Hatzor being the head of all those kingdoms and Hatzor being burned by fire. These are not really details about the conquest. These are details about the place itself. I would say it's either people, it's either locals had these local traditions which they preserved and someone had to run into a local Hatzor guy and get the story from him. I'm trying to understand in what world could a biblical author meet a guy from Hatzor. This is not this is not a banal uh, meeting. Or the other possibility is that there were no local historical traditions, but rather people who visited Hatzor could speculate about physical remains that can be seen in Hatzor. They could look at the ruins of the city and say, this once was probably the greatest city in Canaan. And they could look at the remains of the fire and say, this city was probably burned by fire. And yet, someone has to go to Hatzor and see these remains. Who is more likely to go to Hatzor? Is it an 8th century BCE North Israelite guy or a Judean from the 7th century BCE? Um, I, I do have to say that there are also signs that attest to Judean provenance within uh, Joshua 10 and 11. Uh, but uh, when looking uh, carefully at, uh, at these signs, uh, I think it, it seems quite clear that they come from relatively layer, uh, relatively later layers of text. The layers of text that are, by, their, by the critical analysis of the text, they seem like, uh, they seem like a later editorial uh, layer. Can I, can I, okay, so explain what you mean by that. And, and he, let me set up why I'm asking for the listeners. So mm -hmm. I'm 40 years old. My whole life I've had access to books. If you change something in a book, I'm going to notice mm -hmm. and it's going to look mm -hmm. like you're, you're corrupting it. Is that the same situation with the texts that you're talking about? Probably, probably not. That's there are a few reasons why probably not. First of all, and, and one person having access to two copies of the same book is is a very rare situation before the invention of print. This is you would have one. Okay, actually being able to as as a reader being able to confront two versions is difficult. But I do want to go to go a little deeper than that and say. Perhaps the text was an important text. Perhaps even it was canonized. Perhaps even, I'm not sure it was, but perhaps it was even already in ancient times, in, in the first temple period, perhaps it was already considered a religious, a sanctified text. Maybe. Uh, let's assume all these things. And if we assume these things, this means people were looking into the text and and wanting to make sure uh, that uh, the text is not, as you say, corrupt. Uh, text critical studies, that is, 
studies that, that focus on the differences between existing versions of the same text. In the case of uh, biblical studies, we're talking about uh, studies that focus on the differences between the Masoretic text, our Hebrew canonized text, and the different uh, versions of its Greek uh, translation, the Septuagint, and the existing fragments we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls of the same text. These text-critical studies show very clearly that as late as the Second Temple period, probably until the very end of the Second Temple period, as late as the 1st century BCE or maybe even 1st century uh, AD, these holy books did have different versions. These sacred books did have probably any, uh, each one of these books that we have contained in the Hebrew Bible today had in the Second Temple period quite a few different versions. Four, five, six, ten, who knows? We have just a bit that survived. It appears that at least as far as adding up to a text, this was not considered in, in, in the Second Temple period, it was not considered uh, something you, you're not allowed to do with a, with a sacred text. You're allowed to add on to it. It is much more questionable whether you were also allowed to, to cut out a piece of text. It seems many of those, many of the edited biblical books come from or developed uh, through a process of people wanting to preserve as much holy text as possible. So if you have two different versions, you would put both in. And you have two sentences the same, that say the same thing. If you have two different flood stories, put them both in. Two different creation stories, and put them both in. And, we're and not, if, if, until pretty yeah. pretty late in the game, we're not talking about books, right? We're talking about scrolls, scrolls, which scrolls. which function differently than books, right? Yeah, you mean technically? In well, the sense if, of, of if you how wanted, you cut and paste it, or because it wouldn't really be cutting and pasting so much, would it? It would be you're making a copy, there's a, there's and I want a question to incorporate here. this, and I want to. Okay. Yeah, oh, then yes. If you want a recommendation for another scholar for your podcast, absolutely. <laughs> we'll there is a that. cut and paste theory. There is a, a literally cut and paste theory, but it's not really. The, the question is not whether they. The question that that you're asking, if I understand correctly, is not the question whether they cut and paste it physically. It's rather the question whether they felt it's okay to take a text and just add a paragraph onto it. The so, whole thing. It, it is also the logistics of it, because I, th I think mm -hmm. for a contemporary Western reader of books, it looks a lot more nefarious to add something to a book. Wait, why are they doing this? Even with Bibles, where they realize the, the extant copies that we have, we need to put a footnote because maybe this passage is missing or something, but we'll footnote it. And people think there's a conspiracy afoot. Something's going on. They don't want us to read this. One, and one what of you're the, saying is... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. You say what you're saying. I don't need to say what you're saying. Uh, one of the speculations, this is really not my not my speculation, and, uh, so just, but I, I will mention it. One of the ways in which some scholars uh, assume text would would be expanded is in, in not footnotes, but rather more side notes or in between the lines notes uh, that uh, later copiers mistake to be a part of the text. 
Um, so uh, um, a side note can enter the text. Uh, we see this in the in 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 the Middle Ages. We see this in the history of uh, of manuscripts. We see this uh, phenomenon from time to time. Um, but uh, I think probably what uh, what what we're talking about in in the case of Joshua ten and eleven is these are really two editions of the text that Northern Israelite edition and the uh, Judean 7th century BCE edition, these are two different editions of these chapters that have to do with the creation of larger units of text. That is, this is not something I can prove, this is a speculation, but I do suppose that uh, the original Northern Israelite version of Joshua 10 and 11 was the, uh, it was the concluding episode of a conquest narrative that stood on its own, a, a piece of work that was uh, uh, composed in the northern Israelite uh, uh, kingdom in the 8th century BC and, and stood as it was. Um, the later version of the text is already part of a much larger uh, piece, probably the Deuteronomistic history, that large uh, piece of text extending from Deuteronomy through two kings. So uh, what we're actually looking at is uh, um, uh, an early text, an early relatively short text, perhaps extending from Joshua 6 to 11, or maybe including also something from the first chapters of Joshua, but probably something like that, roughly Joshua 6 through 11. Uh, and this piece was taken by a later editor uh, that wanted to create a much larger work. He wanted to write a history of the people of Israel from, from, uh, from their uh, last days in the desert, that is Deuteronomy, until the destruction of the first temple in, in two kings. In order to create this big piece, he was looking for earlier works that could serve him. He was looking for uh, he was looking through his library uh, for any history of the conquest, and he found a very nice story about the conquest, a northern Israelite story, and he incorporated it into his larger work. But he didn't just put it in as it is, while incorporating it into the larger work, he also expanded it and added elements that seemed right for him. Perhaps he also had his own traditions that he threw in. This is, uh, again, speculation. Uh, but this is what I think we're actually looking at. So this is not just someone taking the text and expanding it. It's actually taking a text and putting it into a new literary context. This is, I think, the motivation in this case. So there's someone making an editorial decision that's a much more reasonable and plausible, and I would even say a charitable interpretation of what the text you have in front of you is than saying, oh, the authorship happened way later, which is what the thesis you're debating was saying, right? Still much later. We're talking about about things that happened around the 1200s. If they happened, the conquest of, uh, of Palestine by the Israelites, if it happened in, uh, 
in around 1200 BCE. To say uh, the original form of the text is from the 8th century BCE and not from the 7th century BCE, this is not really making it making it closer to the events or more uh, or more historically. Uh, no, it seems an oversimplification to just say, oh, the authorship must have happened at this later point when there's so much to it that's not just authorship that, that there's so this chunk of the story was maybe authored on its own had it was not incorporated into a whole until later mm-hmm. uh but that it, it comes from a tradition that's telling a story that was n- not initially intended to be told in this larger story but in a story does that I don't, maybe I'm not yeah, asking. Something or... like that, yeah. It, it seems that okay. the Israelites in general, northern Israelites, Judeans as well, had a, had this tradition, had these traditions about having conquered uh, their land in, in ancient times from other peoples, other nations that, that lived here. And we have, it, it appears, by the way, that we have two different conquest narratives. One is the more famous one in Joshua, that is... Uh, a far more extended one, detailed. This is the the one that we're usually looking at. But actually, we have another one at the beginning of the book of Judges. Judges 1 uh, through 2, 5, I'd say. Yeah, judge, judges 1, 1 through 2, 5 is actually a parallel, much shorter, less detailed, parallel conquest story. It starts as if the story in Joshua never happened. It describes the, the conquest of Palestine as a whole, it is not as uh, impressive as, uh, as the one in Joshua, especially in the sense that it it focuses a lot on the on territories the Israelites are said to have not conquered, to have failed in conquering. It puts much more emphasis on Judah, that is the tribe of Judah that is almost absent from the conquest narrative in uh, Joshua, and I would guess that this is actually the originally Judean uh, version of the conquest. So they had two stories. There was one, a northern Israelite one, much more impressive, um, uh, pretty lame Judean one. And the um, editor of the larger work of the Deuteronomistic history had access to both, and he uh, wisely decided to put the Israelite one before the Judean one because uh, it's much more impressive. Impressive and unifying, right? Like it, it sets a very clear picture that we as a people. It's, right, it's impressive in, in this sense, yes, that we are one nation uh, conquering the land as, as one. The, there are no, uh, in, in the conquest, there are no tribes. Uh, everyone takes part. There is also, there are also no real failures. Everything is conquered. Uh, there is, and this is quite horrible, actually, but there is a, there is a very a complete, uh, a complete form of that horrible practice that appears in the Bible a few times of cherem, of a ban, which means complete annihilation of 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 a conquered city or territory. In this, in in the case of the conquest of Canaan, it is told that the entire land of Canaan was banned. That is, that except for uh, a few outstanding survivors, such as the family of Rahab from Jericho, Rahab the harlot, and the uh, Hivites from Givon, that were able to trick the Israelites, uh, 
save these few outstanding cases, the entire Canaanite population was killed. And uh, horribly enough, this was considered, in the eyes of the Deuteronomistic editors, this was considered a positive, positive feature. This was in, in agreement with the Deuteronomistic ideology. So it's much more impressive in the sense that there are no failures, there is no, there is no, there are no, almost no sins in this story. The people of Israel just obey the Lord and do what the Lord tells them to do, and, and everything goes well. And, and and they get the land and and they get the land and there's in a, retrospect and it retro in in retrospect from the from the point of view of a deuteronomistic history of a long history they get the land and and they get a, a fresh start so for a narrative that is mainly concerned with what will happen with this nation in the future, that is, in the time of the judges and in the time, mainly in the time of, of the kings, this is a very good fresh start to, to start sinning from. To see that we, we, we got all that and still we were, we were so unjust that eventually we got kicked out of our land. Man, it's... So I just want to gush over <laughs> you and your colleagues for a minute. So to explain to the listeners... You, if you're if you're doing this job of biblical studies in an academic way, you're sifting through texts and finding that oh they didn't all come down together, they got mm-hmm. compiled at some point, and they are all both telling a larger story and we're identifying places where someone was telling a smaller piece of a story, and so we're figuring how that piece that we've identified fits into this larger story but also trying to determine how historically the people who actually started to tell that story, what world they lived in, when did they do, Mm -hmm. to cite the title of your article, where and when, because that really matters. It matters where they lived and when they lived, because now we know the intention of this chunk of the story Mm -hmm. in relation to the larger Deuteronomistic is that okay? I really appreciate that there are people out there like you doing that. I, so I okay, I, I picked up on a parallel. <laughs> okay, the episode won't come out until October, but Jody Magnus published an article about toilets and toilet humor and the story of Eglon's murder by Ehud. And she's evaluating the site at Lachish, I believe I said that correctly, and Lachesh, so the gates there. And she's pointing out that the original archaeological survey that was done there, they missed a lot of things and they maybe didn't do great Mm -hmm. work. So what I'm wondering here for Hazor, say, Mm -hmm. is there recent information that you have, that you and your peers now have, that maybe they didn't have back then, that they didn't understand how significant that destruction was? What do you mean back then? So to not factor the destruction of Hazor and the timing that was into a thesis that says, oh, no, this was written in the seventh century by Southern mm-hmm. people rather than by Northern people. Does, does that make yeah. sense? Um, I, I, I'd say that there's, I'm not the only, uh, I'm not the only one that thinks uh, that uh, there was a, a Northern Israelite conquest story before uh, 722 BCE and that Joshua 10 or at least Joshua 11 somehow attest to it. I'm not the only one that thinks that. 
I do, I do think that the significance of these details about Chatzor uh, have, have escaped, escaped scholars. It's, I think the, it's the fact that the focus was, has always been, these details have been known for, for quite a few decades now. This is, there's nothing new about our knowledge that, that, that Chatzor was indeed destroyed by great fire, that it was indeed the head of all those kingdoms. Uh, but the debates around around this these details have always evolved around the question of, of historical memory. That is, it's, it was labeled as, as as the case that puts into question the assumption that there is no historical memory in the Book of Joshua. Maybe there is historical memory, and then the scholars try to find a way to explain these details without historical memory. To explain them as, as a correct interpretation of, of visible remains in Chatzor, but the significance of, of this information to to the provenance of the text, this was somehow missed. I I can't really tell you. I can't really speak in, in behalf of, of the scholars who missed it, but I think I think there is largely there is not enough focus on on matters of uh, of space and geography. In biblical studies, so many details that have to do with the geographical background are not looked at carefully enough. This is uh, this is perhaps uh, some sort of heritage that we have in modern biblical studies from from two thousand years of interpretations of the text by people who never visited the land of Israel. Uh, and, and thinking about these texts as um, universally relevant sacred texts takes them out of, of a local context. So I, I think many details about geography and, uh, and spatial matters are, are not looked at enough in, in biblical studies. So I, I would guess this is the reason. It's, just, it's, it's not the same scholars who looked at these details. So archaeologists and historians were very interested in the question whether this is there is historical memory there and didn't really care about the question whether the text is from the 7th, 8th or 6th century BCE as far as uh, they're concerned. Um, and, and Bible scholars didn't really notice the significance of, of the geographical setting. Which seems like a really which, which is foundational great because otherwise of reading I would have text. nothing to write about. What? <laughs> I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think you could just do an even better job at doing a better job if they had done a better job. Because there's just the texts alone, evaluating the texts, it's pretty recent that they found new and old, this is going to sound weird, new, older copies that weren't available within our um, lifetimes. But, but I, I, I do have to be clear about this. That these versions of the text, these editions of the text, which I'm talking about, are not existent. These are not, these are not, uh, these are not copies of the text that we actually have. These are only reconstructed editions that, that Hypothetical. I try to reconstruct. Yeah. Uh, I just meant simply from the point of view of you doing biblical studies, there are additional mm-hmm. biblical texts that previous generations yeah. hadn't had. So you still would have had work yeah, yeah. to do. I, I just don't want you to feel like you'd be unemployed <laughs> if it weren't for these people making what, you, what you're saying now, and I think plausibly so, are mistaken readings of the text because they're not taking into consideration literal facts on the ground, like 
where was this place? What happened to it? Did it exist when you're saying it? Like all of this stuff happened. That's yeah. pretty important. And the spatial familiarity, which I thought was an yeah. interesting term. And it sounds like something mm-hmm. that has pretty the broad implications for so, ancient text in general. I certainly you, hope sorry, so. This that. spatial familiarity was my was, uh, great my great aim at my doctoral dissertation. The significance of spatial familiarity to assessing provenance. Unfortunately, we got cut off here. I don't think, because I don't have the recording, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think that he had a whole lot more to say. I think we had wrapped it up around this period, just based on what I did get of my file retrieved. Be that as it may, I do want to add, he didn't get to answer the question of who are the authors or people that he thinks the listeners should be looking out for in the biblical studies world. So he recommends Shirley Natan Yulzari, Ariel Seri Levy, and Idan Dershowitz. I will be looking into them and making sure that I have something added in the show notes in case listeners are interested. I really apologize. It is one of those fluke things. I'm not sure how it happened. It hasn't happened since. I will try to figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen on purpose, not just out of luck. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. I try to put episodes out as soon as possible for $5 a month on Patreon. So if there's something that I've announced or you've seen on social media, just know $5 a month. You can listen to every episode that I have edited and I try to get them up within a week of recording the conversation. Take care.